that are just introduced for our consideration today is one by uh, Malcolm Budd, who is Professor of Philosophy and Logic, or Emeritus Professor, I should say, Philosophy and Logic at UCL. Um, perhaps his most well-known work is his Penguin book called The Values of Art, Pictures, Poetry, and uh, Music, uh, and some of that may come up by incidentally uh, uh, today. Anyway, I want to welcome Derek. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, it's very nice to be here. The grand rules. Um, uh, uh, Malcolm Budd, um, who uh, he retired a, few, retired a few years ago, um, and he you might you might have noticed that the essay, if you read the whole thing, is sort of it's kind of shapeless in a way. It has some discussions and it goes on to other discussions and it goes on to other discussions. The reason for this is that since um, Melbourne Bud retired, he, he, he sort of writes for his own satisfaction. And he doesn't really mind about the rest of us. And so they tend to be um, things that his standard length for a paper is now about 18,000 words. And then in order to publish them, he has to cut them down to seven or 8,000 words. So what we get is the kind of seven or 8,000 word and 18,000 word piece. Um, he nice to do find all those 18,000 words pieces to publish them sometimes. He also has a 40,000 word book on Nietzsche at the moment, and an 18,000 word piece on um, art and gravity. So, back to this um, piece. The, um, the reason for talking about this one um, is this is a seminar on, on criticism, is that um, Bud holds this view, which I guess um, some people might think is, is at the far end of a spectrum, where he it's called the intersubjective, intersubjective value of aesthetic judgments. Intersubjective value of aesthetic judgments. So what he means by that, I mean basically that's just another word for saying that they're true, but slightly, um, slightly pulling back from saying that they're true, because if um, because he, he thinks that not all is if somebody judges a work to be um, p and somebody judges a work to be, or good and somebody judges a work to be bad. In every circumstance, that won't be sortable out. But if if these judgments were true and false, then in principle you could sort that out. But he doesn't think that in every circumstance you could sort it out. But in the main, he thinks that when we make um, these judgments, we're making things which um, we put a cap on the table. We can defend it, and we can convince other people, and other people agree with us they're wrong. Um, and so the first uh, we're kind of ignoring a bit on Goodman. The first kind of two thirds of the paper is about. Um, aesthetic judgments in the sense of trying to sit in the sense of aesthetic judgments whether things are dainty or dumpy or whether they're balanced or fine. And he, he has an account which I think broadly sorts out all the problems that Sidney produced. But the bit I want to talk about is the last bit of the essay where he's defending um, he's defending value judgments on aesthetic on works of art. But he thinks that um, that you can legitimately judge a work to be uh, good, bad Whatever, some words are, or actually comparative judgment, those are more sensible, this work is better than that work. Um, and ba the basic idea is that we sit and get you, could you just, like, how many philosophers are there in the woods? Some, right. The basic idea for us philosophers the, um, is, is similar to, I think, the Scanlonian butt passing theory of value. But so, what that means, it sounds terribly impressive. But I'll just read out his, um, this is what he says in the introduction, which I think we've got to hand out to should have done he says, at the very centre of aesthetics is the concept of aesthetic value, the idea of an object which is intrinsically valuable to experience, with understanding of both what kind of thing it is and its specific character. 
But the basic idea, and I know this is not, I'm not going to say, um, so it's a slightly different formulation, but the basic idea is this, is that a work, the value of a work of art, as a work of art, just even more about a caveat, but the, the, the value of a work of art is the non-instrumental value of the experience you have of the work of art, provided the experience has had an understanding. So if you understand the work of art, and you experience it, and your experience has some kind of non-instrumental value, then um, the, the work of art is as valuable as the experience that you have. Okay. Uh, two things about this. Firstly, what does he mean by non-instrumental value? Um, well, let's just contrast that. Um, the easiest way to explain that is just to contrast that instrumental value. A scholar like Jason here told me this, but I can't um, remember. Apparently, in the mission statement, if they were called things like that in the Victorian times, of the, of the National Gallery, it said something like, we want to show masterpieces to the inhabitants of London in order to make them commit less crime and make them more moral. <laughs> so the thought is that looking at great works of art makes you a better person. Well, that would be an instrumental value of the work. Of art. <laughs> that's, that's a legitimate instrumental value of the work of art. So it's work, the art is an instrument to making the world, you of the world better. That's not the kind of value that Bud needs. What, what, so Bud says it be, it's what the value of the experience that we're interested in is not, it's not the, the value which is a pale somewhere else, but rather the non-instrumental value of the experience. The experience is value in itself for its own sake, whatever else. Now, it's a good question, um, and Bud, unfortunately, gives very, very few examples um, of, of what the non-instrumental value of an experience might be. He does give some examples, but if you wanted to think of a paradigm case, it's going to be pleasure. Okay, pleasure is its own payoff. You don't experience pleasure for the sake of some future state. Pleasure is, is a good method. So pleasure is a paradigm non-instrumental value. But Bud doesn't want to say that the, um, the value of all that the experience of works of art is going to be pleasure, it's going to come to something much more broad than that. Okay, so that's the thumbnail sketch. Um, so let's just take that a little, uh, a little more slowly. Um, basically, after going through and talking about um, the, um, these works of art, he says, um, he says, well, Um, at the beginning of section, well, section, well, the beginning of, of, of one of the sections in the paper, sorry, I know you've read the one in the, in the journal, I think in section 12, one, he says, well, basically, basically, well, I'll read it out. He says, for a kind of activity that has an aim, performances of the activity are as such evaluated against the aim. Those who engage in the activity perform it well or perform or poorly, inasmuch as their performance is effective in attaining or making progress towards the aim. And both the merits and demerits, the limits and precision assessment of performances of the activity are determined by the character of that aim. So the idea is roughly this: that for any activity, playing cricket, playing football, whatever, um, if you do it and there's some point and aim to your doing it, then you can evaluate your activity doing it against that aim. Okay, so you can do these things well or badly. And that's its kind of starting point if you wanted to say this, this is true of art. And then he quotes a bit from his um, from the Values of Art book, which is the, the bit on the top of the handout. He says, "A work of art is intended to be understood as a work of art, 
The experience of work of art offers is one in which the work is understood, the meaning of a work of art, how it should be interpreted, is tied to the conception of the work under which the artist created it, the style in which it is executed, the work of art which it believes, the view of the world and life out of which it arose, and the appreciation of the artistic achievement the work represents. So that experience of the work, sorry, uh, and the so that experience of the work must be informed by an understanding of the aesthetically relevant facts about the world's history. So he thinks that when we come to judge a work of art, it's it's something that's trying to achieve the kind of stuff that he lays out there in that paragraph that can be evaluated in as much as it su succeeds in achieving that aim. Um, supplemented by two further considerations. Sorry, I should say the on the handout. Um, the, the third page 11 is referring to the reprint in, the, in his collection. Page 360 is referring to its place in the, um, in the journal article as published in the Journal Pacific. Supplemented by two further considerations, when we value a work of art and a work of art, we value it on account of what it, of what it provides us with in the experience of it, rather than for something not present in the experience which it achieves by means of our interaction to work. So this is just to go back to the, 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 the point is when we value a work of art as a work of art, we value it on account of what it gives us an experience. Okay, I'll actually ignore, ignore the second point. We'll come back to that in, um, if we need to, but not particularly. Um, I we'll do that for the moment. Um, so let's just think a little bit about this idea of, um, of, of the experience of work having to be grounded in the understanding of a work. Um, this, in a way, is an obvious move, but it's quite a powerful move. Because when people say, um, look, taste and work of art is subjective, or it's all a matter of taste, or there's no arguing about taste, shackle us, or whatever language you want to say it is. Um, <laughs> what people tend to mean is that you can, you can like whatever you like. Okay, now that's fine, Bud's not going to disagree with that. Bud's going to think your preferences are up to you. You, you. you prefer whatever works you like, and nobody can gainsay you. The point is, that, uh, that judgments on works of art are not expressions of preference, they're expressions of value. So saying, I like this work of art, is a different type of judgment from saying this work of art is valuable. Okay. And you can, but that doesn't care at all about what, what you like and what you don't like. But what he wants to say is, if you're going to say this work of art is valuable, then your judgment has to be grounded in an understanding of the work of art. If you don't understand it, your judgment is worthless. And I think that I think he thinks that's just generally true, not only really true of works of art, but true of everything. So, for example, if somebody knows nothing about cricket, um, but nonetheless likes to out to watch cricket, in American, yeah, turns out to watch cricket because there are eleven people, you know, twenty-two people walking around in white, who just you know likes the kind of patterns they form. There's going to be no point in asking him whether it was a good game of cricket or not because he just won't know. So in order to judge something as a good, whatever it is, you have to, it has to be grounded in an understanding of whatever it is you're judging. And then the interesting point that kind of falls out the end is that if it's grounded in understanding, you get objectivity, you get into subjective validity. Why? Well, think about cricket again. It's just going to be a fact whether a good game of cricket is a good game of cricket. Nothing to do whether you prefer games of cricket like that or anything like that. What makes it a good game of cricket are going to be factors about the cricket. You know, was it a gritty last cricket stand? Was it a brilliant spell of bowling? Was it blah, blah, blah? Okay, so that's, that's, that's the, the shift that you get in from preferences, which he doesn't care about, which are not into subjectively valid, 
to judgments grounded in understanding, which he does care about, which he thinks, because they need to be grounded in understanding, can be aesthetically um, incidentally valid. Sorry. Okay. Um, two objections, just very quickly. Um, the first objection is um, he says, well, and this is uh, the person who criticizes here is your speaker from last time, Matthew. Um, uh, so, um, in his book, Revealing Art, um, Matthew Kieran says, well, whether or not a work is original is not something that enters into the um, experience of the work. And what Bud replies, he says in reply, is yes, it is. Okay. Bud has quite a broad idea of what can be incorporated within the experience of the work. There's a general problem here, which is what background information is relevant to criticism? We can go back to Winsor and Beardsley, and then we say, well, does it matter what day, what, you know, what night wrote it on what lawn on what day? Well, no, it doesn't. Except, and this is sort of Bud gets this from Volkheim, I suspect, is that it matters if it's going to have an effect on the experience of the work. And because Bud has a very broad conception of what can enter into the experience of the work, an awful lot is going to matter. So he thinks you experience the originality of the work. Take an example from um, Richard Volkheim. Richard Volkheim thinks it's critically interesting that Balzac changed his, uh, changed from putting, uh, uh, sorry, Roland changed from his statue of Balzac from it being a naked statue to being a clothed statue. Volkheim thinks that when knowing this, when we look at it now, we see it as a statue that might have been a nude. Okay, so even that enters into the experience. So it's very broad. So Malcolm Bud has this broad conception of experience and they can overcome that first objection. Just incidentally, I mean, one thing that in the dis his discussion of that first objection, you get that rather nice pithy statement of the relation between experience and understanding. It's not that they're disconnected. It's not that you need to understand the work and then somehow you'll have a better experience of it. But rather, I'll just quote a couple of better than he does, every work of art is a good work so that that is so in virtue of his nature of character, the consolation, uh, sorry, no, it's all like, sorry, useful glass and understanding. A work, it came before, so I think all mixed up, but the bit before the two objections, a work of art is to be evaluated as art by reference to the nature of the experience integral to understanding it, an experience in which the work has perceived a right, its meaning manifest. So you have to experience it in a way that it's understanding, that its meaning is manifest to you, that's the connection between experience and understanding. Sorry, back to the objections. Um, okay. Um, is sorry, I've run together two objections, but I don't think it matters. Is aesthetic greed so let's get to the crucial bit. Is aesthetic disagreement decidable? Um, so so the crucial point for criticism, if somebody judges a work of art one way, somebody judges a work of art another way, film, book, painting, um, but tends to talk about, but I think it's generalizable. Can, is this in principle sort, sortable out? Well, but that seems to think, um, in many cases, yes. So he gives some examples for once. Um, well, I think he, I can't remember whether it's, it's later, isn't it? He says, mm -hmm. Um, Poussin is better than Holman Hunt, um, or Holman Hunt, but they wait for the conscience, I can't remember Poussin. Poussin and Hayden is better than Holman Hunt, so wait for the conscience. A Beethoven is better than a... Rappenhoff. Rappenhoff, thank you. Uh, but, so, 
but on the other hand, um, because, uh, and, and he's happy to say that, so he thinks that although aesthetic value is gradable, it's not precisely gradable. So in kind of coarse grain, it's very, it's, it's going to be true that some things appear above other things. But if you've got things that, um, uh, because you're talking quite big intervals, it's not going to be obvious, for example, that a Poussin is better than a Beethoven. Now, if this all sounds silly to you, it sounds silly to Pud, because he says, the question of, it's because of this that the question of whether one book is finer than another is generally of no or of most little interest. It's what, what's of much more interest is whether, whether a particular work is good or not. So how would we say whether a particular work is good or not? And I guess this is the interesting bit, or the most interesting bit, at least for me. Um, I'll, again, I'll just read this out. Um, it is a matter of articulating a constellation of properties that account for the non-instrumental value of the experience. Um, furthermore, this is a quotation from Bud, the practice of criticism appears to provide no support for any unitary account of what the intrinsic value of good works of art consists in, attributing to them a variety of virtually meritorious features that seem to have nothing that is common and peculiar to them, other than their contribution to making the experience of other works and instantiate and intrinsically valuable. So what does that mean? Well, what he says is that the non-instrumental value, the non-instrumentally valuable experience of half the work is going to be grounded in the properties of the work. Okay. So if you want to say to somebody, look, the, my experience of this work has this non-instrumental value, and I understand the work, somebody says to you, I don't get it, I don't agree, tell me about it. And then what you have to do as a critic is you have to tell some story with respect to this constellation of properties that the work has which will convince the person that the work is worth experiencing. Okay. Um, and because uh, these properties will be reasons for your having a non-instrumentally valuable experience of the work, and because the idea of a reason for a particular person, if it will take a few instances, is a bit incoherent, if it's going to be a reason for you, it's going to be a reason for everybody. Remember, we're putting preferences to one side. So say, for example, you say, well, the non-instrumental the non value of my experience of this work is grounded in the way it sensitizes me to human suffering. Right? Well, if it sensitizes you to human suffering through your understanding of the work, then anybody who understands the work should have the experience that sensitizes them to human suffering. So if it's, value, it's, if, it's the, if it's something that gives value to your experience of the work, and you're right about that, it should be something that gives value to their experience. Um, I'll, just, I'll, I'll say one more thing and I'll stop. I mean, we can go in. I, I've, got, I've got a few things which, um, uh, which, I, think, which I think about the essay, but that might come out in discussion. I'll bore you with that now. But just um, here's something that, that you might think is, is a problem for Bud, which is that people are often far surer that a work is a valuable work. Than they, are, than they are able to articulate the grounds for the value. I, I know this is a great work of art. I know it's a great, this is valuable if anything is. And you say, well, why is it valuable? And then they, um, they can't articulate it. They can't tell the story. Now, Bud is happy to say that in principle, you should be able to drag these constellation properties out of the work and tell some story with respect to the properties that make the experience valuable. Uh, once, 
I once said to him, but Malcolm, aren't you not, I mean, don't you think we can draw any conclusion about the fact that we're so inarticulate in the face of great art? And he said, well, you can draw the conclusion that you're inarticulate. <laughs> <laughs> so he really, I mean, he does, he, 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 he believes, he doesn't think that there's anything to stand in the way of our telling the story about the value. The what grounds the non-instrumental value like spreads words are. Okay, I'll be quiet. Um, yeah, if you want to ask any questions about the stuff on the on the side, I have that and do be quiet. You can sit down. Thank you very much. <laughs>